Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 192, The Great Race. First, as always, I want to thank our newest patrons. Thank you to Patrick McKenzie. Also, nice meeting you this summer, Patrick. Thank you to Chris Halley. Haley, not sure the pronunciation. Angus, Vlad Taushanov. And welcome back to Leif Hart, who it was also nice meeting over the summer. Also, a quick kind of announcement. This podcast has now been going for over 10 years. I forget the exact date because I, I think I kind of started it 10 years ago in August, August, but I think September was when the first episode released, something around there, but more or less, it's been 10 years. Over that time, it's been listened to over a million times, and it's received financial support from over 300 people over the course of the whole lifetime, and all that support has made it possible for me to buy this lovely first-class sound equipment, and lots and lots and lots of books, as well as to pay for you know SoundCloud hosting, to pay for the website, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I just wanted to take this as a moment to thank all of you. And kind of note, you know, it's really interesting that I never would have guessed it, but maybe the most impactful part of doing this podcast for me has actually been all the people, you all, that I've gotten to meet. And I've made a lot of really good friends and just had such a wonderful time having coffee, beer, lunch, whatever with a bunch of you over the years. And yeah, I just, I never would have guessed that making a podcast would have led to so many great friendships, but a big shout out and thanks to all of you who listen, all those who get in touch, all those who support, just all of you. Thanks. And I know there's a lot of news today. One other quick update. I figured this would be a good time to mention things about the book. I did get an offer from an academic publisher, but it would have cost like $100 a copy, which is kind of typical for niche academic books. But for me, that totally defeats the whole point of the book, which is to be accessible. So I'm talking to a few other publishers. Sorry, this is taking so long, but you know, it's something that I really want to do right. Anyways, Now, getting into it, first, a mild correction. Uh, I mixed up the old and new calendars, which just happens sometimes. I forget what source is using which one. I thought the Italo-Turkish War was ending in mid-October, but actually the treaty was signed October the 3rd, so just before the Balkan Wars began. So I mentioned before that that war was still technically ongoing, but it was not. It concluded right before this current war started. And with all that out of the way, let's get into it. Now, last time... We finished covering roughly the first two weeks of the First Balkan War. During that time, the Bulgarians managed to inflict two crippling defeats on the Ottomans in Thrace, pushing past the Luluburgas defensive line and approaching the outskirts of Constantinople itself. Behind them, Adrianople is under siege, and the army is struggling to maintain supply lines over rough countryside, muddy, kind of muddy roads, and heavy rains. In the Rudopi, Bulgarian troops have met fairly small resistance as they move south towards the Aegean while capturing key cities. In Macedonia, the Serbs also won a major victory at Kumanovo. But, like the Bulgarians in Thrace, the Serbs failed to immediately exploit their success to prevent the Ottomans from regrouping. Still, the Serbs have by now captured the major towns of Kumanovo, Skopje, Stip, and Veles, 
aided in part by Chetty bands from the Viemero. The Greeks also advanced, primarily focused on taking Thessaloniki, but again, despite victories, they were unable to take advantage of their successes over the Ottomans to inflict a crippling blow. The Montenegrins have laid siege to Scutari, but are having little success taking the city. They're also frustrated by Serbia's successful taking of cities like Prizren, which the Montenegrins wanted. Lastly, in the Aegean, the Greek navy has taken several strategic islands, enabling them to effectively prevent any Ottoman reinforcements from reaching Macedonia. On all fronts, war crimes have been committed against civilians as soldiers and occasionally civilians themselves take out anger, frustration, and a desire for revenge on perceived enemies. As a result, streams of refugees are moving in all directions, further straining the region's already overburdened infrastructure. Overall, Bulgarian success has convinced Tsar Ferdinand and much of the army's leadership that seeking a diplomatic end to the war mediated by the great powers, which was the original plan, should no longer be their main goal, as a total military victory in conquest of Constantinople now seems within reach. Remember, you know, Bulgaria, quite understandably, is a little bit skeptical of sort of peace mediated by the great powers because historically the great powers have not been kind to Bulgaria, have not cared very much about Bulgarian aims. And so you can kind of see why the prospect of, you know, outright taking Constantinople and being in a position where Bulgaria can just sort of dictate whatever peace terms it likes and the great powers won't really have much to say about it, although we'll talk more about that later. They they do have strong opinions here, but you can kind of see why that's so familiar. If you think back to the way the great powers have kind of treated Bulgaria in similar instances. Now, this episode is beginning on October the 18th, as those heavy autumn rains are beginning to fall, hampering logistics and aiding an outbreak of cholera that is already ravaging the Bulgarian army. By this point, about 1.2 million soldiers are involved in the fighting on all fronts. Stephen Constant points out that, quote, this was a greater number than in the first month of hostilities in any European war of the preceding century, twice as many as the Franco-Russian War of 1812, three times as many as the Crimean War, and even more than the Franco-Prussian War of 1870, So I thought that was really interesting, gave some good perspective that even though the First Balkan War is seen as a you know kind of a precursor to the First World War, but a you know a regional conflict off in the Balkans, that the number of soldiers that you know are at arms and are involved in the fighting is makes this essentially the largest, at least in the first month, European war again in over a century. Now, I want to talk a little bit about how the great powers and the great the kind of public of the great powers are receiving the news of the first two weeks. The British public were delighted by news of all the victories of the Balkan League, with the French ambassador in London writing, quote, The successes, unforeseen by the English, of the Bulgarian, Serbian, and Greek armies, known as Montenegro's left off, have influenced the spirit of a nation which respects strength. But these triumphs have not actually created, but increased the sympathy which has always existed in religious England for the Christians of Macedonia. It is the sympathy awakened by Mr. Gladstone during his famous campaign on the Bulgarian atrocities in 1877 and which created in 1894 a pro-Armenian movement, end quote. Even the Germans, 
again, ostensible Ottoman allies, were affected by the Balkan victories. The German Kaiser overcame the embarrassment of the German-trained Ottoman army's defeat. Uh, Remember, the Germans, again, trained the Ottoman army. The Germans built a lot of the Ottoman uh, kind of fortifications that were overrun, so that doesn't look great. Also, the Ottomans are using German field artillery pieces and things like that. But despite all this, the German Kaiser said, quote, The Bulgarians have been led in a masterly fashion and have engaged brilliantly. No conference of the powers can take even a single village away from them. They have honestly conquered what they wanted and have forced their way onto the concert of Europe. That is what new blood and spirits needed. Perhaps we shall see Ferdinand I as Tsar of Byzantium or as supreme leader of the Balkan Confederation. End quote. So even the Kaiser there is kind of excited and is doing a bit of, uh, you know, uh, speculation about a revived Byzantium or an Ottoman confederation. And frankly, this shows the dramatic difference between the cold, calculated realpolitik of the late Otto von Bismarck and the current Kaiser Wilhelm. Despite years of working supporting the Ottomans as allies, the Kaiser is suddenly enthusiastic about their demise and dreaming about political futures the way like a teenager would today on YouTube. But, you know, if you'll recall, under Otto von Bismarck's chairmanship, this was not how Germany functioned. You, you can't imagine Bismarck being excited by the victories of a power that he was trying to kind of suppress through his kind of uh, machinations. So, Yeah, it just, I think, gives an interesting concrete example of how the Kaiser is so different and how his personality is shifting and shaping German foreign policy now. But anyways, the French, for their part, were also rather caught up in enthusiasm for the Balkan states. A Polish-Russian aristocrat living in Paris wrote how, quote, All the talk here is of the Bulgarians, of the merits of their king, of their excellent army, and of the superiority of schneider Clouseau artillery over that of Krupp, end quote. So, again, yeah, the, the French artillery that the Bulgarians are using over the German artillery the Ottomans are using. Misha Glenny points out that in 1882, the Ottoman army had planned to strengthen all four main fortresses in Thrace, but the Sultan had only provided funds to improve Adrianople. Considering Adrianople was completely surrounded but still resisting Bulgarian attacks, he speculates that had the Ottomans invested in their other fortresses similarly, the war in Thrace might have ended quite differently. So, yeah, a little bit of speculation and kind of broad views on this, but now I want to get back to the war itself. On October the 18th, Bulgarian units captured Nevrokop, which is modern Gotsedelchev as they moved south towards Ceres. They had received orders from Sofia to get to Thessaloniki before the Serbs or the Greeks. Remember that this city was a major prize because, in large part, it offered an excellent port on the Aegean Sea as well as land access to Thrace for Greece. So if Bulgaria could take this territory, yeah, it would really kind of act as a nice linchpin for a nice Aegean presence for Bulgaria. But I think it's important to understand what this city was at this point. For one, its population was very mixed. The most recent year I could find really good numbers was 1890, but then it was about 40%, 47 rather, percent Jewish. That is Sephardic Jews exiled from Spain after the Reconquista in 1492, who had been welcomed by Bayezid II into the Ottoman Empire. So 
yeah, uh, the, the Jews that spoke Ladino, this kind of uh, Romance language, a very specific group. Otherwise, 22% Turkish, 14% Greek, 8% Bulgarian, and 2% Roma. Again, I couldn't find exact numbers before the war, but it seems that the Jewish and Bulgarian populations declined relatively while the Turkish and Greek ones increased. But nonetheless, the largest ethnic group in the city were Sephardic Jews, making it a place of the bulk that any of the Balkan states could kind of in theory justify taking for themselves because it's not like it was a, you know, Turkish city or a Greek city or a Bulgarian city. At its heart, it was basically a Jewish city. But while the Greeks and the Bulgarians were each moving towards that prize, the Ottomans were searching for a way to hold on to Macedonia after all their losses. Their best shot by this stage was Bitola, where heavy rains had transformed the surrounding valley into an impassable swamp. By this moment, 48,000 demoralized Ottoman troops were preparing the city for attacks by both the Greeks from the kind of northeast and the Greeks from the south. Now, the Greeks had an opening to move on the city, but recall that the government in Athens had ordered its army to prioritize Thessaloniki. The Bulgarians, who were supposed to get Bitola according to their treaty with Serbia, were a bit concerned about the Greeks taking the city because, remember, the agreement of the kind of governing the war between Bulgaria and Greece had zero provisions about territory. So the Bulgarians thought, okay, if the Serbs get it, at least they have already agreed ahead of time to give it to us. If the Greeks take the city, you know, we're, we're at square one. And uh, I've said it many times, but, you know, they say ownership is, what, 90% of the law or something. And, you know, when it comes to deciding who gets what in the treaty, the army that took a city and controls it has uh, quite a leg up. So, yeah, the Bulgarian government now kind of pushed the Serbs to, you know, basically go quickly, get in there, take Bitola as quickly as possible. But this wasn't the only new direction of advance for the Serbs. On the 20th of October, Prime Minister Pasic ordered the army to move to the Adriatic via northern Albania. The aim was to meet the sea north of Tirana and Duras, and, well, the Serbian commander actually pushed back, arguing that his men were in no state to make that trek. Because crucially, that trek was over the mountains of northern Albania. And let me say, having been to those mountains, they are awe-inspiring and not a place I would want to take an army. Um, even today, these are very high mountains, very rugged, isolated terrain, and especially back then, full of Albanians who are not going to be terribly welcoming towards a Serbian army. There's also the reality that Austria-Hungary is very against the idea of Serbia gaining a foothold on the Adriatic because it basically is afraid of the prospect of Italy and Serbia kind of working together to cut off the mouth of the Adriatic and isolate Austria-Hungary's navy in there. So yeah, if, if the Serbs reach the sea, the Austro-Hungarians might have something to say about it. But for now, this is just an order. And despite the commander having reservations, he is overruled and Serbian forces begin a rapid march towards northern Albania and the Adriatic. Elsewhere, on the 19th, the Greek army, sorry, the Greek navy, finished taking the islands of Imbros, Samothres, and Thassos after meeting relatively little resistance, meaning the Greeks now control all the major islands of the northern Aegean. So, 
A strategic position by October 20th was that the Greek campaign of taking the Aegean Islands was essentially complete, ensuring no Ottoman reinforcements will be arriving by sea. The Serbs have split their focus, with most of their forces preparing to complete the destruction of the Ottoman army in Macedonia by advancing on Prilep and then on to Bitola, but a small Serbian force is also rushing towards the Adriatic. The Greeks are sending the bulk of their forces to Thessaloniki, with their own small force heading north to attack Bitola. In Thrace, the Bulgarians are still kind of regrouping, uh, walking ahead to reach that final Ottoman defensive line, and generally sort of preparing to make a concerted assault on Constantinople, but they need a break first. Now, I want to focus a little bit on the Greeks in Epirus. You, you know, have a map. This is the region of kind of northwestern what's now Greece, just below Albania. On October 20th, Greek forces reached and began a siege of the port of Preveza. This lasted only two days before the garrison surrendered. The capture of this port enabled the Greeks to begin to supply their forces by sea instead of relying on strained overland infrastructure that was hampering armies all over the Balkans. So this port was a fairly big deal. With the capture of the port, the Greeks could resume their advance north into Epirus and begin moving towards the next major objective, the city of Yanina, which is kind of the primary city of the region. However, even with the advantage of that port and the participation of a contingent of Italian soldiers commanded by Giuseppe Garibaldi's son, remember Garibaldi fought in the original Greek War of Independence and his son is fighting in this war on behalf of Greece, Despite these advantages, the Ottomans still offered stiff resistance in Epirus compared to most other theaters, and the Greeks had a tough time. Yanina itself was going to prove difficult. The fortress there had been recently modernized and contained a whole series of forts featuring concrete gun emplacements with trenches, searchlights, machine guns, barbed wire, and artillery. To make matters worse, some Ottoman troops fleeing south had further reinforced the garrison, so even though these troops weren't, you know, didn't have great morale having just fled, still, it was more men to help arm this fortress. So, when the Greeks reached the city, they tried to surround it and begin a siege, but they were only able to surround it effectively on three sides, meaning the Ottomans still had access to more reinforcements and supplies, or at least what was still available, from the north. At the same time, the Greeks were completing the brief siege of Preveza, the Serbs were fighting for Prilep on the road to Bitola. Fighting here lasted about three days, but the Serbs enjoyed an overwhelming advantage, so the outcome wasn't really in doubt. After a few days, the Serbs then resumed their advance south towards Bitola, but met stiff resistance, requiring a full day of intense fighting to push past a series of fortifications along the road. It was at this point that the Ottomans made their first appeal to the great powers to mediate an end to the war. They were holding Bitula, Yanina, Scutari, and the ring of defenses in front of Constantinople. But the best they could do in this situation was merely hold and inflict maximum casualties. But as we've seen, the Balkan states were more eager than ever to push harder and take more territory, while most of the great powers, even erstwhile Ottoman allies, were delighted at the Balkan League's victories and saw no reason to put an end to things at this point. As a result, there's really no prospect for a mediated peace at this moment. But back to southern Macedonia. After taking Nevrokop, 
Small, a small Bulgarian force under Serbian command continued its rush south and took Serez on the 23rd. This was the last major obstacle between them and their prize, Thessaloniki. But the Greeks were making their way towards the city as well. They were heading through Thessaly, but they had been held up for about two days taking Gyanitsa on the 19th and the 20th. Once that city was taken, the roads to Thessaloniki lay open for the Greeks. But the crown prince decided that after basically more than two weeks of nonstop fighting, his army needed rest. So the Greeks took three days to recuperate before resuming their advance. But while the Greeks had been resting, their forces moved west across Macedonia in preparation for a strike north at Bitola. But those forces suffered a major defeat and had to flee back south. This essentially stabilized the front south of Bitola and prevented further Greek advances there, and it also caused the Greek force moving towards Thessaloniki to hesitate because, you know, they kind of felt the Ottomans were beat and that this would be a cakewalk at this point, but this showed the Ottomans could still fight back. But on a larger scale, what it means is that the Greeks are almost certainly not going to be the ones to take Bitola, it will be the Serbs, which should make the Bulgarians happy at this point because that's what they wanted. Getting back to Thessaloniki, by October 24th, the Greeks were in the process of surrounding the city and began negotiations for its surrender. Meanwhile, the Bulgarians were rushing south to get there first, but, well, the Ottoman commander knew that this situation was totally hopeless, there was no prospect for resupply by sea, and the morale of his garrison swollen by retreating soldiers was just abysmal. The city was indeed well prepared for an attack by sea, because the Ottomans had always assumed if Thessaloniki was going to be attacked, that's where it would be attacked. But its defenses on the landward side were woefully inadequate, meaning that either the Greeks or the Bulgarians would in theory have little trouble taking it, and the Ottoman commander knew this. So, with the encouragement of some of the European representatives in the city, the Ottomans began negotiations with both the Greeks and the Bulgarians. The, the Bulgarians had kind of sent a letter ahead of time. Essentially, the Ottomans were hoping that one or another side would give them more favorable terms and they would surrender to that side. The Greeks had already ordered a full-scale attack, but this was called off just hours before it was set to begin when they learned that the Ottomans intended to surrender. That Bulgarian unit rushing south again sent a message ahead with their own surrender terms, but those offered by the Greeks were more generous and the Ottomans decided to surrender to them after, after the commander informed the Bulgarians that, quote, I have only one Thessaloniki and I have surrendered, end quote. So, just like that, the Bulgarian mission to take the largest city in Macedonia had failed. The opportunity to obtain not just a substantial port on the Aegean, there were a few others in Thrace, but, you know, they, they were nowhere near the size uh, and kind of capacity of Thessaloniki. This would have offered huge economic advantages. But more than that, as we know, the city was where the Macedonian revolutionary movement was born and had been a key intellectual and cultural hub for Bulgarians in the region. Even though they weren't you know, a massive part of the city's population, it was still an important Bulgarian place. So the city was surrendered to the Greeks, but it will see a kind of uneasy occupation by both Greek and Bulgarian soldiers, resulting in a few clashes between the two. Sandansky himself will also visit shortly after the city's surrender, though there are kind of competing claims of precisely when, 
McDermott's book, of course, includes glowing reports of how he punishes looters and thieves in the chaotic aftermath, but who knows what he really did there. In any case, the great race for the great city was lost, but there were still major prizes to be gained elsewhere. Now, while that big race for Thessaloniki had been ongoing, the Serbs had resumed their advance towards Bitola. After the Greek defeat south of the city, it was theirs for the taking. Much like Thessaloniki, the city had taken in many retreating Ottoman soldiers, but it still managed a garrison of only about 38,000 compared to the Serbian army of 108,000 that was bearing down on them. But the Ottomans had put together strong defenses, and for now they were holding the Serbs back. Meanwhile in Thrace, the Bulgarians finally resumed their advance on the 25th. They faced a major challenge because the Bulgarian army never anticipated making it this deep into Thrace, and so they didn't really know anything about the fortifications they were about to assault. This understandably made them quite cautious, but Ferdinand ordered the attack nonetheless. Now, what were these fortifications like? While not state-of-the-art by any stretch, the Ottomans did have a strong position of fortifications anchored by natural barriers like swamps and lakes. Manned by over 100,000 soldiers with 280 artillery pieces, this was a formidable force who knew that failure meant total defeat. After the time when the Ottomans had to prepare, this was the strongest set of fortifications the Bulgarians will yet to have faced. When discussing the attack, General Savov, who harbored reservations about it, said, quote, What should we do? We shall try, God willing. That way the Tsar, the Bulgarian nation, and also you and I will have clean consciences before our posterity that we did everything humanly possible. End quote. To this, General Dmitriev responded, quote, Yes. History and posterity for the past thousand years cannot forgive Krum and Simeon for failing to attack and take Constantinople when they came here. Doubtless, we would not be forgiven either. End quote. But after the refusal of armistice terms, Bulgaria really had no choice but to attack. Taking the Ottoman capital would allow them to dictate whatever terms they liked in the peace. But it would also greatly anger Russia which, as we know, has tried and failed to take the city for centuries, and was already deeply bitter about even the prospect of Bulgaria accomplishing what they could not. The city itself had several warships and soldiers from the great powers which had recently arrived after the Ottoman request for their help protecting the city's Christian population because, well, yeah, considering how things were going in the war, there seemed a very real possibility that there could be kind of anti-Christian pogroms. With the Bulgarian army at the gates, yeah, mass violence could break out at any time. And with that, I'll wrap up this episode. Uh, A quick note I maybe should have mentioned at the beginning, but as of this episode, someone I think asked for it and I decided it was finally time, I am including a list on the blog post for each of these episodes with the main sources I'm using. Not every single source, sometimes I just use a source to confirm a date or something, but the primary ones are all there. And with that, I'll kind of wrap everything up. Now, to recap, Montenegro remained stuck besieging Scutari, so nothing really changed there during this episode. The Serbs are rushing to the Adriatic, have taken Prilep, and are currently fighting their way towards Bitola, 
The Greeks made advances in Thessaly, Macedonia, and Epirus, but they're currently bogged down in a brutal siege for Yanina and have been prevented from advancing on Bitola from the south. But the Greeks won the race for the biggest prize, Thessaloniki. They also ruled the waves and have taken yet more Aegean islands. Bulgaria, for its part, may have taken Nevrokop and Seres and resumed its advance in Thrace, but the roughly 10 days covered in this episode haven't seen any major strategic gains. Next time, we'll see the Bulgarian assault on the Chetalje line, the Serbian assault on Pitola, and the beginning of talks to end the war. You won't want to miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by the talented Teddy Raven. As always, you can find more information at bghistorypodcast.com and the blog post for this episode with major characters, with a a list of all the uh, dates and all the major sources is linked in the episode description, and I'll catch you in the next one.